It's good to see all of you. I hope you've had a good Sabbath. It's amazing that it's still January outside. It was a beautiful day walking in. If we'd known the weather was like this all the time, we'd have moved to Charlotte a whole lot, uh, a whole lot earlier. For the sermon today, I want to remind you of something that's an obligation for all of us. It's a task we all have, and that is to come to know God. Uh, Jesus Christ actually said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And that's in John 17 and verse 3. We have the task, we have the blessed challenge of striving over the course of our life to know God better and better. And you know a lot about someone, you learn a lot about someone by learning what's important to them. Actually, the sermonette sort of told us that, right? Uh, Trying to take a look at our time. How are we spending our time? Our time is a record we cannot erase of what is truly important to us. Uh, And we learn about what's important to us so that hopefully we can change it if need be. And uh, I have with me a box that I have kept for years since I was a child. Uh, In fact, I have to warn you, if you come near me, it's it's still a little moldy, I think. We had a mold issue in a house we were in once with a uh, flood, but I've cleaned it as best I can. Now I'm afraid you're going to shake hands with me after services and worry that I'm getting you moldy. I I, I think we've gotten it clean. But I've kept this since I was a child, and I've kept little things in it that were special to me, that I came across uh, in my life. And I've noticed, actually, it's it's gained a few things that aren't special to me in any way at all. I think just over time, you're moving from place to place and think, oh, I'll stick this in that box. But this is the box, and I'll take a few things out. It's an example. Uh, This is a letter from my grandmother that she wrote to me when I was 13. I'm not going to read it to all of you guys because she was mainly giving me advice, and I don't want you judging me on whether or not I'm following her advice very well. I can tell you, actually, I wish I had studied a whole lot better when I was 13, Uh, but it was was very special to me. That's important to me, and so it made its way to the box. Uh, Closer to all of you, when I was six, well, I wasn't quite 16. I was 15 years old. And even though it's got a lot of scribbling on it from the person that gave it to me, this is actually an announcement bulletin from the Worldwide Church of God dated January 4th, 1986. And I remember the day I got this. I was in a Chinese food restaurant with a friend of mine who was attending the church. I was not yet attending the church. I had begun to study these things, and I'd been studying them for about a year. And here we are, we're just talking about stuff over Chinese food, and she happens to take out this announcement bulletin. Uh, out of her purse, and to me it was amazing, not because of what it said, but it was it was the first time I came in contact with something about this church uh, that had created these materials that I was that I was studying and that I was learning from. And so I've kept this, you know, all this time as just kind of a representative that this was sort of my first tangible contact because uh, I was I was 15 when I put this in the box because it meant something to me. Uh, let's see another couple things. This was a a, it's a letter that was sent to one of my relatives in 1940 that I came across in a relative's belonging that actually, if you look inside, it has handwritten records of births and marriages going back to 1805. I don't know any of these people, clearly, but just that touch with my past uh, and these handwritten records mean something to me. Now, just in case you think, wow, you know, Mr. Smith, he's what a deep guy. Uh, I've also got this uh, Revenge of the Jedi patch. 
that when I was in the Star Wars fan club, now you might say to yourself, well, the movie wasn't called Revenge of the Jedi. It was called Return of the Jedi. I know that's why I kept this as a kid because they changed the name and I thought this might be worth something one day. And I went on eBay and it is. It's worth like $7.99. So it's so, it's so good that I kept it. Anyway, if you go through this box, you'll see things that over the years I decided to hold on to. Things that were important to me that I didn't want to disappear. Well, God has a box like that. And if we take a look in that box, there are things we can learn about him. A box where he tucked away things that are important to him. This box we call the Ark of the Covenant. If you turn to Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7. Now, when I was a kid, I learned about the Ark of the Covenant from the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Which may not be the most accurate uh, recollection, but it was a beautiful uh, uh, prop they had in that movie. What was the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, I'll summarize real briefly. We'll talk about more as we go on. But it was a box that God had Moses build based upon a pattern that God showed Moses himself. Uh, it was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold throughout. It had a picture of, uh, I mean, it had a, a two cherubim statues on the top. Uh, and it essentially served like a throne for God. You would meet God there. Uh, it would be, it would generally stay in the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of God's tabernacle, and then eventually His temple. In a lot of ways, it really represented God's presence on earth. It was really like a throne in that sense. In Numbers chapter 7, we see it treated similarly. Just some interesting things about it. Numbers chapter 7 and verse 89, the last verse of the chapter. It says, when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. When Moses went to go speak to him, he went there to the ark. And there would be this voice and there would be God meeting with him there above the Ark of the Covenant. Here called the Ark of the Testimony. It's sort of a spoiler alert for what we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, turn to Numbers 10 a little bit later. Numbers chapter 10. The Ark in many ways as sort of a throne, if you will, symbolized God's presence among the Israelites. And I really like this passage in Numbers chapter 10. That gives sort of a feel of that. While they were still in their wandering before they came into the promised land, uh, they were still led by the pillar of fire and then the, uh, the cloud. And it talks about how they would move from place to place. Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. It says, So they departed from the mountain of the eternal on a journey of three days. And the ark of the covenant of the eternal went before them, for a three for the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. You had Levites assigned to carry the ark and it sort of went before them as if finding a place for them to stay. A real picture of God leading his people. And it continues, verse 34, And the cloud of the eternal was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out, 
that Moses said, Rise up, O Eternal, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the ark rested, he said, Return, O Eternal, to the many thousands of Israel. This ark very much pictured God's presence among his people uh, as a ruler of his people. But the ark wasn't just really some kind of throne. Essentially, it, it carried things. It contained things. And we see in three different places in Scripture that God commands a specific thing here and there to be stored inside the ark. So that if you were to go in as the high priest into the Holy of Holies and you're there and you're before the Ark of the Covenant, these three objects would be there as well. They were that important to God that if you came to meet him, he wanted you to know that these three things were also in your presence in his Ark. And if they matter that much to God, they should matter to us. And they have the possibility of teaching us something about him. So that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of the sermon. We're going to examine these three objects that spent time inside the Ark of the Covenant and ask ourselves, what can we learn about God from them? How he rules among men, how he works in the world, and who he is. The title of the sermon today is Inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you saw the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you might think it's just a Nazi melting machine, but it's really not. It has actually a lot more significance. Now, some of you already know there is a passage, and I've specifically not turned to it. The Apostle Paul, in one passage in the New Testament, tells us all three things. It's a nice, convenient list. But for the purpose of dramatic uh, uh, feel, I'm holding off. But some of you already know. You're already thinking, I know what those things are. Well, I challenge you right now in your notes, write down the three things that you think they are. If you know, you'll find out and we'll go through. Now, if you don't know, or if you're children and haven't heard this before, just pay attention. You know, if you're children, I have a children's, the children's Bible class coming up uh, not too long from now. And I'm expecting all the kids here to be able to say, here's the three things in the Ark of the Covenant and tell me wham, wham, wham. So I'm watching. All right. The Ark of the Covenant. Let's take a look. The first item is probably the one, if we're all going to get it right, we'll probably get this one right. Turn to Exodus 25. Exodus 25. The fact that it was called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, as we've already read, uh, is a good indicator of this particular object. Exodus chapter 25, here in Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 10, we're not going to read all of it for the sake of time, but we have God giving Moses instructions on how to build the ark. He talks about the wood uh, to build it with, its dimensions, uh, overlaying the entire thing with gold, having what's called the mercy seat on top with the cherubim, uh, making sure though even the poles that went into the rings to carry it also had to be overlaid with gold. It just looked like something brilliant uh, and excellent. And he says later in that passage in verse 16, 
You shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. And this, in this particular case, refers to the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone that God was going to write on himself. Now, I think someone asked me, some was a long time ago, because uh, they know those original tablets that, that God wrote on were destroyed uh, when it comes to the sin of the golden calf, and that he eventually wrote new tablets. Uh, did God put those new tablets in? Actually, he did. Those are the ones we read of. If you turn to Exodus chapter 40, we'll actually see that they were indeed placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put it in the ark of the test sorry, you shall put in it the ark of the testimony and partition off the veil. And so he explains about the different details concerning the tabernacle. And then he says I lost the place where he actually says he puts it in. Oh, here we go. In verse 20. That's right. He says, He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. So in God's throne, this object symbolizing his presence among his people, he wanted to make sure that a copy of the Ten Commandments was inside that ark. So that wherever he went, that is wherever the ark went, the Ten Commandments would go with him. I was actually talking with Mr. Robinson about this just last week, and it's something that he had thought about before. He was talking about a 3D simulation of the temple that he had found that actually sounds really cool that I haven't seen before, but it gave you the chance to kind of imagine you were walking through the temple. And as you're walking through, in that particular case, the, uh, uh, the first temple, you're going through and you're passing through the areas where anybody can be, but then eventually the audience gets smaller and smaller. And then eventually only the priests can be there. Eventually you come to the Holy of Holies and only on rare occasions can the high priest go in because you're coming into the very presence of the God of Israel, which we know in the church and are blessed to know actually was the one that became Jesus Christ himself. And in that presence where Jesus Christ is there, are the Ten Commandments. The idea that churches of this world have that the Ten Commandments don't mean anything to God anymore is absolutely, fundamentally ridiculous. God placed in the Ark of the Covenant things that meant something to Him. It's often like when you have a portrait of a king or a ruler and he wants to be surrounded by those things that symbolize who he is and his power. So perhaps he has a scepter uh, and his favorite robe. And on his arm, he might have his prize falcon uh, of all of his, whatever you call a group of falcons. I don't really know, a flock or whatever. But he's got those there because that's what he wants to be known as and remembered for. God wanted the Ten Commandments with him. When I, and I hearken back to the time having that old uh, bulletin from 1986, 
When I was first learning the truth, that was a revelation to me. I wanted to know about God. I wanted to know what He was like, what He thought, what was important to Him. How do, why was He the way He was? What was really good? What was really bad? And I remember going back to those times, my earliest teenage years and my preteen years, and I've reflected on some of the morality I was forming at the time. I can actually think of certain little uh, axioms or certain little statements that I would make in my mind that were my summary of what I saw about the world, right and wrong. And I can evaluate them now and know that they were inaccurate. They were being shaped by the world's values, by, frankly, the entertainment I was watching. This Boy, if I go back to my preteen years, I, I can remember one show. It was, very, it was early. Today it wouldn't be shocking at all. But it, one of the main characters was a homosexual. It was on cable because that wasn't going to fly on regular television back then. Uh, and the whole show was about a premise of some brothers where one of them at the very beginning comes out that, you know, I'm a homosexual. And it's all about him and they're trying to get used to having him in their family. And he has a friend who's a much more obvious homosexual. I'll just leave it that way. Uh, it was very risque for the time. Today, it would be nothing, absolutely nothing. It would be one of the tamest shows you'd probably think on network television in prime time. But back then, it was really quite a thing. And I remember forming values based on that. If you don't think the television shows and the movies you watch help form your values, I can guarantee you they do. And I remember learning, quote unquote, from that program, certain values that they were trying to teach. That it really doesn't make a difference. That if I can almost quote, well, actually, I can quote what I thought as a young as a young person was that you know love is something between souls was what I thought. You know the soul back then I believed in an uh, immortal soul as well because my church did. Uh, you know love is really something between souls. You know what difference does does the outside make? And I know where all of that was seeping in. And then this happened. And then God introduced me to the truth specifically his laws. And I saw that God didn't think that way. But it wasn't because he was somehow cruel or arbitrary. It's because these laws were an expression of his mind and his character and a vehicle for his love for us. Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John in chapter 5. You know, sometimes... The Apostle John is associated with love a lot because he speaks about it a lot. But it's interesting, he also speaks about God's commands and commandments a lot. That's not a coincidence. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2, plainly stated. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why does the Apostle John have to tell us the commandments aren't burdensome? Because we all live in a world trying to convince us they are. No one has to say usually, you know, eating ice cream isn't burdensome. We go, I know, you know, while we're shoveling it in. It's, that's not a hard sell. 
But the Apostle John recognizes that he's trying to talk to us in a world where the world is trying to convince us day in, day out, through every form of media imaginable that these laws are a burden. They're a burden on you. Why would you want to keep those? And so he's trying to say these are not a burden. That's a lie. And that was a revelation for me to hear. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever been approached by uh, someone who's... eh, Maybe part of that syrupy strain of mainstream Christianity, but asked if you love the Lord. Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord, brother, sister, whatever the case may be? Uh, I've been asked those kind of questions before. You know, oh, do you love the Lord? Oh, well, yes, you know, yes, I do. And there's often a sincere spirit, but I've, and I wish I'd thought of it the time I was asked. I haven't been asked ever since I thought of this, so maybe there's a reason for that. But the next time I am asked, do you love the Lord? I want to respond, yes, I do strive to keep his commandments. Because it's interesting. If you look, say in the, the New King James, where I looked it up, uh, you look, use a computer. I didn't do this without the computer because you could look up the phrase. I looked up the phrase, love the Lord, in the New King James. And I think it came up about 18 times, that specific phrase, love the Lord. Of the 18 times, about 15 of them, if you read the passage, It's connected to keeping the commandments. Loving God is inseparable from keeping his commandments. And the love of God is inseparable from that. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I appreciate God's law. Recognizing I was called out of a world that doesn't recognize it. But after you've been in the church for a while, in particular, perhaps if you've grown up in it, it might be easier to lose sight of how much we should appreciate it, about what a difference it actually does make. Why does the law there? Some of you, especially if you've grown up in the church, you might be able to think of a time as you've grown up when all of a sudden your desires greatly conflicted with God's law, where there was something you really, really wanted And God's law just says, no, don't do that. Or something you really, really didn't want to do. And God's law said, yeah, you're going to do that. Go do that. Now, if you haven't come across a time like that, just wait. Human nature does happen. I'm 45 and it still happens, you know, on occasion. Uh, You know, the carnal mind is enmity against God's law. It doesn't exactly mesh with that. But why is that law there? Is it there just because God is arbitrary? Because he just likes, he's just a structure guy. He just likes a lot of structure and rules. Not the case at all. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Moses explains to Israel what we need to understand. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Moses says here, And now, Israel, what does the eternal your God require of you? But to fear the eternal your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the eternal and his statutes, which I command you today for your good, for your good. Have you ever wondered that about your parents? And think, oh, my parents have so many rules. Why do they do that? I, I, gotta, I haven't spoken intimately with every parent I've ever met. 
But of all the parents I do know, they're similar to us in that we do not wake up in the morning and think, you know, what new rules can we come up with to really frustrate our kids today? You know, I mean, I saw Benjamin the other day. It looked like he was having a pretty good day. But we're not going to have any more of that. You know, we're definitely going to come up with some rule that prevents him from doing what he wants. If we understand that God is a loving father, then he is making these rules because he loves us. Because it's an outgrowth of his love. God is love. And that same God who is love placed the commandments in his ark. So that he would be associated with them. So that when you came into his presence, those commandments would be there as well. Pardon wants to say they're not limitations, but they are limitations. We need limitations. It's been a long time, but I've driven on mountain roads where there was a guardrail on the side. And even though I never brushed up against it, I was delighted that it was there. Uh, The idea that there was something there, the purpose of which is meant to keep me from going off a cliff. God's laws are limitations, but they're the limitations that cause and bring about human flourishing. Your flourishing, my flourishing. Uh, One of my favorite uh, mental pictures when it comes to God's commands and the role they play in our life is ah, I grew up in Texas. There's a lot of stuff rusting and falling apart in Texas, Uh, not because everything's falling apart, but we just have a lot of space. And so you're out in some field someplace where there's some railroad tracks and maybe off to the side, you'll see a railroad car that in its day, something terrible happened and it just kind of fell off or swung off or whatever the case is, but it's just sitting there rusting. It's a home for rats and mice and coyotes and owls. I have no idea what because I don't go into railroad cars that are there rusting and falling apart, but it's there just rusting off the tracks, having gone not an inch since it fell off the tracks. By a lot of definitions, that car was free. Finally, it was off the tracks. You know, the tracks only let you go that way or that way. I want to be off the tracks. I want to be free. Ah, poof. And then rust and decay and rot and a frustration of its purpose. The railroad car only fulfills its purpose when it's on the tracks. That's the only time it does any good. That's the only time it's actually doing everything it was designed to do and achieving everything it really could achieve in this world. God's law, yes, it does have restrictions, but they're like those railroad tracks. They restrict us in all the ways we need to be restricted to become every bit the best of ourselves that we ever could be. To accomplish His will in our lives. To have a life full of meaning and purpose and dynamism and and everything that all these highly paid speakers on stages that are self-help people tell you you should have in your life. It's a blessing to have. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 32, there's a little prophecy about the world ahead of us. Jeremiah chapter 32. Starting in verse 37. 
Jeremiah 13, verse 37. Speaking of gathering Israel back together and kicking off the millennium in that time ahead, he says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries, all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. The discomfort the fear that we see in the world with terrorism and all these other things, God doesn't want that for the world. God doesn't intend that for His kingdom. And he plans on safety and peace and blessings and joy. But how is He going to accomplish that? It says in verse 38, They shall be My people and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear Me forever for the good of them and their children after them. One heart and one way. The world around us is seeking to have one heart, but it's a heart that celebrates many ways. This idea that our individual choice is the greatest thing we could ever worship in the world and that nothing should ever interfere with our personal individual choices. World peace will never come that way. Peace in our cities will never come that way. Peace in your families will never come that way. And peace in your life will never come that way. One heart and one way. And that way that God has crafted for us meant so much to him that he placed it in his ark. One of only three things. So that everyone who came to that would also be coming in the presence of those commands. Dr. Meredith has stressed multiple times in the past that it's worthwhile to study the statutes. Not just the Ten Commandments over and over and over, but he's emphasized to us, take the time to look at the statutes, to read the statutes. Because the statutes are the commandments come to life in day-to-day living. I was actually talking about it with uh, the kids once, about the, the one that we often use as an example that God told people to put a railing on their roof uh, because they would actually spend time on their roof, you know, when the, the evening got cooler, et cetera, get out of the house where it was hot. And you put a railing up there because you love your neighbor as yourself. You put something up there to keep him in the dark from stepping off of your roof. And so meditating on that statute, we'd say, we have a, we don't really do that today. Our roofs are kind of slopey, right? It might be kind of difficult. And yet, if you were to dig a hole, would you put something around it? Why is it at Target and Walmart, who have not sponsored this sermon, by the way? But anyway, why is it big department stores? If there's a wet spot on the floor, put a little sign in front to warn people. Now, on one hand, they do it because they don't want to get sued if someone slips and hurts their back or something. However, if they've read God's law and took time with the statutes, if they listen to Dr. Meredith's sermon... They would know that's what you do for your brother. You put guards around to keep them out of danger. These seem like small things, but this law is a key to understanding the mind of God. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll wrap up this item. Hebrews chapter 8. I've interacted with a lot of people that are uh, worldly Christians, good and sincere people. I'm not mocking their passion. Uh, frankly, just as it were with the Gentiles in Israel, sometimes their passion should shame us when we lack passion for the things of God. 
And you talk with them and there's a great sincerity and there's an honesty and a desire to do the right things. I just want to know God's mind and I want to know God's heart. I want to know what He's like and what He wants and what He doesn't want. And this is part of how we do that. What is God doing in your life and my life? Among all the things He's doing, He wants to make you a part of His family and me a part of His family. Is that correct? Yes. He wants us to be children of His. Not just children begotten in this life, but eventually born for the next one. Correct? Yes. He wants to reproduce Himself in us. So we reflect Him in every and all way we can under His authority forever. Yes. He wants to reproduce His mind in us. How is that being done? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10. Paul says, quoting the Old Testament, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This has been on God's mind and heart from the very beginning transforming us by these laws. In fact, let me uh, call an audible. Go back to uh, the recollection of the giving of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is a place where you see the Ten Commandments being discussed again. The original recording of them being given is in Exodus chapter 20. But in Deuteronomy, we have Moses recalling everything for Israel. And then we come to Deuteronomy Uh, chapter 5, where he goes over the Ten Commandments again. And there's one thing I really like about Deuteronomy chapter 5 that isn't present in Exodus. If you've ever watched a movie and then come home and gotten the DVD, maybe, after some weeks or months, or you like the movie enough, you wanted your family to have it, so you bought the DVD. Though you don't spend too much time watching it because you need to be reading and studying, Mr. DeSimone. Uh, But still, you got the DVD, you want to watch it at home. And the DVDs often to entice you to want to get it, they'll have extras. Sometimes they're deleted scenes, scenes that they had filmed for the movie they didn't actually use. Deuteronomy 5 has sort of like a deleted verse. It's not really deleted, but it gives a little additional insight into God's mind that actually doesn't show up in Exodus, what he was thinking after giving the commandments and the people's response. So in Deuteronomy 5, you have the commandments being given. And the people respond, and they respond positively after being terrified. They say, oh, we're terrified. You go talk to God. We don't want to talk to him. And you just tell him, hey, whatever you say, we're going to do. You just say it, and we're going to do that. Now, Exodus records that, but Deuteronomy records a part of God's response that Exodus doesn't. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we see it here. Let's say I'll start in verse 28. It says, Then the Eternal heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. That is saying, you bet. Well, we'll do it, Moses. Go tell him. And the Eternal said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and their children forever. Then he said, go and say to them, return to your tents. That verse, the day it finally really grabbed me, and it was about 
ah, boy, at this point, I don't want to say, maybe about 20 years ago or so. Deuteronomy 5.29, it starts with that passionate, oh. You know, we don't say that at random normally. My wife says, well, do you want a chicken sandwich or a turkey sandwich? Oh, I long for a turkey sandwich. Uh, you know, we just don't normally do that. It's a word of strong emotion. As in hitting your toe up against the wall at full speed, kind of, oh, you know, I'm in agony. This is a statement straight from the heart of God Himself. He's given His law, His precious commandments to His people, and they have said, Moses, go tell Him, we're going to do everything He says. And He says, you know what they have said is good. Then He says, oh, that they had such a heart of them that they really would. Not because their sin would impact him in some kind of way, but he knew what their sin would do to them. God cares about his law. It is one of his tools for turning us into him. And he cares about it so much, he placed it in his ark. So the presence of the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant remind us that God's laws matter to him. And so they should matter to us as well. Let's look at the second item. Turn to Exodus chapter 16. It's the Apostle Paul who tells us these items were actually in the ark. Exodus chapter 16. So you're already congratulating yourself because you're pretty sure you got, you got that one right. Exodus chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 1. We read, and they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now let me just pause right here, and let's say, on one hand, we ought to give the Israelites a certain kind of break. I'm not saying there's an excuse for what they've done, but it's very easy when we read about personages and people in Scripture to write them off as such losers that we could never relate to what they're doing. I've done that with uh, Esau, for example. Esau traded his entire uh, inheritance for a bowl of soup. You have got to be kidding what a moron, right? That's what you want to say. What? Just what's wrong with him? And yet, when I look at my life, and God promises me the universe and all of creation, and I have made that choice in terms of trading it away for something that doesn't even fill my belly, whether it's a bad attitude or something like that. So the moment we write someone in the Bible off is just ridiculous. Is the moment we can't learn from them. And it's easy to write off Israel as just a bunch of whiny baby complainers. Because let's be honest, they are a bunch of whiny baby complainers. And yet at the same time, we can be also. Okay, let me restate that, I guess. I can be also. And I hope that all of you, at least somebody here says, okay, me too. Uh, you know, we can be in perspective. But here they were complaining. And they didn't, you know, when I go home and complain, I'm sitting in air conditioning when I complain. Uh, you know, and, I'm, and I got food in the fridge when I complain. So let's give them just a little bit of understanding, uh, at least some mercy, if you will. So verse 3, it says, The children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Eternal in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, 
For you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay, I agree, that's pretty bad. It's kind of hard to relate to that, right? Hopefully we don't relate to that too intimately. And yet these were people like us, with constitutions like us. And what does God do? You know he's frustrated sometimes, and yet he responds very mercifully and actually uses it to teach a lesson. It says in verse 4, Then the Eternal said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, without reading the entirety of the account, let me just summarize that. God was reintroducing them to the beautiful truth of the Sabbath. And so he miraculously gives them this stuff every day on the ground that they can harvest and they can, they can mash it and they can cook it and work with it to make food. But the plan was on what we would call Friday morning, he would give them twice as much so they could also prepare for the Sabbath because there was not going to be any hunting around and harvesting on the Sabbath. Uh, we'll jump just a bit to verse 11. And here's where he gives the instructions. It says, The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Eternal your God. And so he gives them quail uh, that morning. Verse 14, it says, When the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? And what in the world? You know, what is that? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the eternal has given you to eat. This is the thing which the eternal has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. It says the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. It was a perfect satisfaction of their needs. Now, they were instructed not to save some overnight. He was wanting them to work every day for that bread. Kind of a hearkening back to what is often called the Lord's Prayer, uh, but it's just the model prayer, where it says, give us this day our daily bread. They would have to go out and get their bread each day. Verse 19 says, Moses said, let no one leave any till morning, notwithstanding, you know, don't leave any till morning. And you know he's saying under his breath, I know some of you are going to leave it till morning. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 20, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. God didn't want them just storing it over every day because he wanted the sixth day to stand out. Because that day when they stored some, it didn't rot and it didn't stink. God blessed that effort so they would have some to be able to use and eat on the Sabbath. So if you recall back in verse 15, they said, what is it? What in the world? What is that? It's a bunch of whatchamacallit. That's what it is. Uh, well, that's actually what they ended up naming it. If you go to verse 31, 
It says, and the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So it wasn't like it tasted like garbage. It tasted pretty good. So they called it manna. They called it essentially whatchamacallit. They said, what? What's all this? What? 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 Hey, that's pretty catchy. Let's call it a bunch of what? Uh, so that's essentially what they named it, and they gave it the name well, whatchamacallit. Uh, did anyone remember Hershey's used to have a bar? Whatchamacallit? You know, I've always wanted to be able to sell someone... Hey, I brought you some manna, you know, and hand them a Hershey's bar with whatchamacallit. But every time I think of it, I'm never in a store where there's any whatchamacallit. So that's what they decided to name it. Jump down to verse 35. It says, the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came into an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. He took care of them and fed them. Really, in essence, from his own hand. He actually sent them bread that they could gather every day. It's hard for us to appreciate that in the United States, frankly. We walk into Walmart and you go into the bread aisle and you essentially are surrounded, I've said it before, by two giant walls of bread. Back in their day, that wasn't the case. You didn't always know when your next meal was going to be there or that you'd be guaranteed another meal. But for those 40 years, God blessed them and gave them bread to eat every single day. He took care of them the entire time. Actually, you could check in Nehemiah 9. Their clothes didn't even wear out. You know, I mean, we should have invested in shoe companies before we had four boys. Uh, you know, we got through shoes, not as fast as we want to because we just can't buy them that fast. You buy them one morning, like, okay, does it look good? Feel good? Great. They get home, oh, and their toes are already poking out, you know, of the front. So I wish I'd invested in Nike or something to be able to take advantage of what my children were probably going to do to the market. And yet while they were out, they didn't have that problem. Their clothes were taken care of. Their shoes were taken care of. God made sure miraculously he provided for them. And if you go back up, verse 32. It says, Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Eternal has commanded. Fill an omer with it, that is, with the manna, to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the eternal to be kept for your generations. As the eternal commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. That is, it was placed beside the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant, according to the Apostle Paul. So in addition, what is the second thing? It's a bowl of manna, a pot of manna. God wanted not only his law to be in the Ark of the Covenant, he wanted a collection of manna, the bread with which he took care of and nourished Israel for those 40 years. It was important to God that when people were to come before him at his throne, that there was something there to represent his provision for us. That he was our caretaker. That he does watch out for us. Because we need reminders. Turn to Numbers chapter 11, if you would. Numbers chapter 11. 
You might think, wow, like kind of bread sort of made with honey. You know, that probably tasted pretty good. And it was like free every day for 40 years. That must have been fantastic. Well, you know, maybe after the first 27 years or so, you might start to get a little tired of it. I, I don't know. You know, I've, I've, people know I like macaroni and cheese. I'm about to get rid of it for a number of weeks. I'm going to have a mourning period next week uh, as I begin to skip macaroni and cheese, trying to be a little more healthy. But that said, as much as I might like macaroni and cheese, every day for 40 years might, might even push my limits, I think. Uh, Israel certainly felt that way. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4, Numbers chapter 11 and verse 4, we read, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving, so the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Oh, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. I remember when my dad uh, had a uh, heart condition. Uh, he had gone and got an angioplasty when uh, when I was really pretty young, actually, to take care of a blockage. And I remember for a time he couldn't eat a lot of his favorite foods. He just had to have a lot of chicken. It's chicken, 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 chicken. And I remember one night seeing that dish of chicken come for him again. I really thought he was going to explode. Just chicken, you know, he just, he just couldn't take it anymore. And here they are. They just can't take any more manna. And so they're hearkening back. But you notice Israel never says, oh, we miss the chains and whips of Egypt. Oh, just feeling that lash on your back and having your skin opened up, stinging all day. Wow, those were the best. Uh, you never see Israel hearkening back to their slavery. But we can be like that as well. We can be like that. It's so easy to only think of the positive things we think we're missing out on and failing to realize that for 40 years, like no other people in the world ever could have, they wandered a wilderness and were cared for every single day by the creator of all things who made sure they had something to eat and that they were nourished and that they were taken care of. God wants us to remember that. Uh, actually, the manna pictured something in the way of the greatest provision of all time. If you turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We have a long discourse here by Jesus Christ. I won't read the whole thing. It's worth reading. It's kind of an almost trivial thing to say. This part of the Bible is worth reading. Uh, but really, in particular, the way Jesus Christ builds so powerfully on this example uh, and this analogy, it really is worth spending some time with. Um, but I just want to grab a small part just as an example. In John chapter 6, and we'll drop to verse 48. Jesus Christ says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. You know, the manna was miraculous. 
And as a people in Israel, they probably imagine one day that day will be here again when God will just give us food every day. They'd already seen Jesus Christ feed the crowd miraculously with bread. Probably, frankly, the reason some of them were following him. This is the free bread guy. Uh, you know, let's keep following him. And he tried to make a point. He said, you know, that bread was miraculous, but it didn't give them eternal life. They ate it and they died. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Verse 50. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread of him, he says he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The greatest provision of all Jesus Christ has given us. Dr. Meredith stresses one of his favorite phrases is to feed on Christ. And it's not just that he says that in services. Every council meeting that I've ever been to so far, he tells the whole council. He says, I can preach it, you guys. I've been around for a while. He says, feed on this book. Feed on Christ. On these teachings. This is life. This is so much better than the manna because eternal life is found in these pages. The teachings of Jesus Christ, what he has to offer. Actually, uh, it came to mind that Dr. Meredith says that all the time because we were at lunch this week and we were just talking about it was just a I think it was Friday. It was a just an informal lunch there at the office. And uh, Dr. Meredith just made a, it was just an offhand comment, but I took note of it because he had a look on his face that grabbed my attention but he said thank god for the bible and he wasn't actually preaching he was eating a sandwich so he wasn't in preaching mode necessarily there it was just a comment i felt from his heart thank god for the bible and do we say that thank god for the bible if we think our life wouldn't be that different without it we aren't paying attention to it god wants us to understand that he provides. He wants us to care about this. Like we feed on bread, feed on the Bible. Uh, King David uh, challenges me a lot when he talks about hiding God's word in his heart. You know, they didn't have a Bible on their iPhone. King David's iPhone was much more limited than yours and mine. Uh, and so he couldn't just pull up a scripture on his Bible app. He hid those words in his heart so he could call them to mind at any time. It actually didn't challenge me quite as much until I kept hearing uh, Mr. Ames refer to it in sermons where he would uh, recall one from memory in the video sermons I would see or talk about you should know this and then it's all suddenly it did challenge me. Am I taking those verses, am I putting them inside like I would bread, like I would manna? You know, like the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the garlic of Egypt, the things this world offers us, the things the devil offers us can seem so tempting and we can feel not taken care of because we lack the things of this world. But God wanted that manna in his ark to remind all of us, I will never allow you to lack for the things you truly need. I am your provider, the God of Israel. So that was the second item that he felt important enough to place inside his own throne to be with him at all times. The last item, we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. 
Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16, and we'll start at the very beginning. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. Now we have to understand these were important men. But it doesn't just mean important because they had a title. Again, don't write these people off. You know, uh, if you've seen the Ten Commandments movie with, uh, with Charlton Heston, it's easy to think of these guys, you know, Dathan and Abiram, as, ah, Moses, Moses, ah, yeah, just, you know, kind of classic sort of bad guy. And these would be people we would think of as men of renown. They may have served in their areas, their congregations, their families. Who knows how many people in those congregations were living in tents, perhaps that they had paid for or that they had donated. It's easy to think of that, oh, these were the bad guys. Are they going to come dressed like Darth Vader in Star Wars as opposed to being people from among the people that were men of renown, men that were looked up to, men that were trusted in the people. And it says in verse 3, They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the eternal is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the eternal? Now, let me ask you, it's false. First, let me just say right up front, it's false. Moses did not exalt himself, right? Aaron did not exalt himself. But is it true what he said that the people were holy? You know, they they were. God had separated them from Egypt. He was working with them in a way that he worked with no other people on earth. Is it true that we're holy? sanctified and set apart by God. So they start from a conclusion that seems reasonable, but then move on to something that is not. And they were challenging the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Verse 4, so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he spoke, that's, that's not him fainting, just so you know, that's him humbling himself. It says in verse 5, he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow morning the eternal will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. And then he gives them instructions for how to do this. Take censers, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and put incense in them before the eternal tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the eternal chooses is the holy one. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. So it was a showdown, uh, as it were, between Moses and Aaron and all of these other men. But as a showdown that God was going to decide. So what happens? Uh, who did God pick? Well, if you've read the story, you know. If you haven't read the story, do read it. We're not going to read it all. But we get a hint in verse 23. We read there, it says, So the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Oh, man, it's about to get bad. You know, tell everybody else, Get away from their tents, because I'm about to do something. And what does he do? 
Frankly, he turns the earth into a Pac-Man and eats them. Uh, The ground opens up under their tents, their household, their belongings, their tents, all of it falls into the earth and it closes over all of them and they are buried alive. They're buried alive. And all the men that had censers with fire like they could offer in the place of Aaron and his sons, fire from God himself comes out and consumes them. They thought they could bear the fire of God and that they were of God and they were worthy, and God showed them otherwise. Well, it's quite a day uh, there in Israel. So jumping down to how the people responded, what was the reaction? Yay, God has shown who is his. Huzzah! You know, leadership is clear. Uh, that's not what they did. Verse 41, it says, On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the eternal. It just makes your head want to explode, you know? It's like, you've got to be kidding. They just saw the ground open up and swallow these people and fire come out. Just like Moses were standing there like, all right, they're in position. Pull the lever, Aaron. And like Aaron would pull a lever somehow and cause the planet uh, to eat them. That's not what happened. God made his choice clear. But yet the people are still complaining. They're still complaining. They just don't get it. And God eventually says, you know what? I've had enough of this. I want to make this point clear and clean in a way that no one is going to forget. And so he stages his own kind of contest. In Numbers chapter 17 and verse 1, we read about it. Numbers 17 and verse 1. And that, by the way, I didn't, I'm skipping some details, but a plague starts to go through all the people. Thousands die. Another day in Israel. Uh, anyway, chapter 17, verse 1. It says, The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, twelve rods. Write each man's name on his rod. And you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And so what have they done? Just to recap real quickly, each leader of a house has a rod, a staff. uh, And it's just a dead piece of wood. It's a dead piece of wood that can be used for a cane or, you know, bopping people on the head. Regardless, uh, it's a rod. It's a staff. And so what does he do? He says, place them there in the uh, uh, tabernacle of meeting. And it says in verse 5, And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. You know, it's interesting. The complaining was about Moses and Aaron. But it's God who's taking it personally. It's God who decides to actually change the laws of biology in a miracle to get rid of the complaints he's tired of hearing. And so it says, verse 6, Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader according to their father's houses. Twelve rods and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the eternal in the tabernacle of witness. Uh, 
And it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. If you look at that, that's all the stages of growth at once. This was not something where someone could have snuck out and said, oh, we've got to find some almonds. We're going to staple them to Aaron's rod. We totally want him to win this thing, you know, so they do that. Uh, it'd be like finding something in all of its stages of growth all at once in one place. Uh, it was a miracle. This rod that was as dead as all the others was producing fruit like it was living and alive in a way that no almond tree ever could in those multiple ways. So we have God showing his preference among the people. Uh, Verse 9, Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the eternal to all the children of Israel. They looked, and each man took his rod, and the eternal said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, just as the eternal had commanded him, so he did. God was tired of their complaints about whom God had chosen to lead. And he let them know. And it was a life or death matter for them. It was getting to that. If you read the entire chapter uh, before this, leading up to it, God was like, you know, Moses, Aaron, stand back. I'm just going to totally take out everybody. It was a good test for Moses and Aaron. A lot of us would have been like, yeah, that's fine. I got to admit, they are really irritating. Are there some other slaves in Egypt maybe you want to work with? You know, Abraham have some other. Uh, It might have been tempting, but they didn't. They actually interceded on behalf of the people, which God was surely pleased with. He was very, very angry. And he did this miracle to show that he chooses who's going to lead. Now, this is a lesson Aaron would have learned earlier. Aaron had his issues. You know, Aaron, you know, golden calf fame. Uh, You know, Aaron, who had his issue with Miriam and with Moses' wife, uh, he had learned. It wasn't that he was perfect. It's that he was the one God had chosen. The Apostle Paul confirms that Aaron's budded rod was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Understand what that means. This is the seat of God's government in a very literal way on earth. The Ark of the Covenant, His throne. And whenever someone came to that throne to commune with their Creator, the King of Israel, He wanted that reminder there that He chooses how He leads on earth. And He chooses through whom He leads on earth. And He chooses who will be used to administer His law on earth. Now, we learn from Judges about a time when God was not pleased. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time. uh, But it does say in Judges 21 that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21, 25. Notice what it doesn't say. Everyone just did what he wanted to do. It doesn't exactly say that. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was like the Garden of Eden all over again. Where God says, don't eat this tree. You know, this one's fine. Don't eat from this one. And Adam and Eve decide, you know what? Eating from this tree is right in my eyes and I'm going to do it. 
And Israel had had a time with the judges where they were living like that, where everyone decided for themselves what is right and what is wrong. Their own sense of what would really please God, or for a lot of them at that time, the gods, because there was certainly uh, some apostasy here and there, and what wouldn't. And God condemns that time. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work in an environment where every man decides what is right and what is wrong in his own eyes. We actually see how God works. So we have a, a king doing it right in Second Chronicles chapter 19. Second Chronicles chapter 19. Second Chronicles chapter 19, and we'll start in um, verse 4. Here we have Jehoshaphat trying to make things better, trying to take the land and bring its culture its government, its structures, more in line with what God would have the culture to be. And so it says in verse 4 of Second Chronicles 19, So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and brought them back to the eternal God of their fathers. Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges... Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the eternal who is with you in the judgment. You know, I've been in that place in the ministry where you feel the weight of that. That you're not judging for man, you're judging God's judgment. That you're doing your best to decide what it is that God wants. Sometimes it's something heavy. Sometimes it's whether a person will be attending anymore or not. Sometimes it's relatively small. But in all of those things, you know that you're expected to give God's own judgment in that case. And it's a humbling circumstance to be in. It can be scary. Pretty scary. Because you know you'll be held accountable for that. But then you have this other statement. Where it says that you do not judge for man, but for the eternal who is with you in the judgment. That he hasn't left you alone to figure that out. That he is working with you in that judgment. There's actually a, a mathematical law, uh, Gödel's um, uh, result concerning uh, incompleteness and other things. I was going to do a whole hour-long lecture on that mathematical uh, law, but I decided not to do that. I hope you don't mind. Uh, but it's a, a law that actually kind of suggests that anytime you have a system of laws, you're going to also need judgments because there's going to be novel things that come up that will need someone inspired to make the call to explain how to apply things. And as part of what Jehoshaphat was doing to restore godly government in the kingdom was to appoint such judges that God could use in a way that he wasn't using the others to communicate those judgments. Well, you know, we know from Scripture in Hebrew 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He works that way today as well. Turn to John chapter 20.
This is a passage that is actually abused in multiple ways. John chapter 20. This is after Jesus Christ is resurrected. He's speaking to his apostles. And he appears to them. And we read that he says in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now that's one way in which this can be uh, messed with, is thinking that somehow right then they got God's Spirit. And that's not the case. They got the Spirit later in Acts chapter 2. If we don't see that, we have proof because when Cornelius receives God's Spirit, and Peter's trying to explain that to the Jews, he says he received the Spirit just like we did. And how did Cornelius receive it? He received God's Spirit and began speaking other languages. When did that happen? It didn't happen right here. It happened in Acts chapter 2. Christ was symbolizing what he was going to do. That his very spirit, like his breath, was going to come into them and be working in them. That he would be with them. And that context explains the next verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He was not giving human beings the ability to somehow forgive sin or not forgive sin. But he was identifying, you will be those I use to communicate that forgiveness. I will be dwelling in you and using you to lead. God doesn't change. The way he worked before is the way he works today. We're at a time when a lot of people don't necessarily want to respect that, uh, even in the larger community that goes by the name Church of God. Uh, People don't want to understand that that God himself chooses his leaders. Actually, we see such times prophesied in the Bible. If you turn to 2 Timothy in chapter 4, 2 Timothy In chapter 4, starting in verse 2 of 2 Timothy 4, we see that Paul says to Timothy, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but according to their own desires, Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. We are living in a time full of teachers that if we want to, we could heap them up for ourselves. We can find them with DVDs and CDs. We can find them on the internet by the cabillions. In some cases, we heap ourselves up as a teacher. We're living in a time when this is the state of many who call themselves Christian and consider themselves a part of the church of God. But it is not how God has ever worked in the church. Ever, ever, ever. How does he work in the church? We see it in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4. He says very plainly about how he works in the church. 
Ephesians 4 and verse 11. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry or serving, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What happens if we ignore those that God has set aside for that, whose rods are budded? Well, the result is we see in verse 14. It says, why does he do that? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine or teaching by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That is always the result, is chaos. Chaos. So how do we identify those? There's a lot of people that says, well, I'm one of those apostles. I'm one of those prophets. Well, we actually have that test in Matthew chapter 7. Second to last verse we'll look at today, Matthew chapter 7. Well, maybe not today. When you go home, feel free and look at other verses. Uh, but here for the sermon, Matthew chapter 7. And I, 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 to me, the analogy seems powerful. Uh, it could just be me. Um, and if so, tell me later. But in Matthew chapter 7, I say the analogy, I mean the correspondence. Starting in verse 15. Jesus Christ tells all of us, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You know, it'd be a lot easier if we just counted raised hands or something, right? Uh, we wouldn't have to worry about fruit. We could just take a look and see how many people voted for that particular person. And that would be it. Oh, it's that guy. But the Bible tells us to examine fruit, examine the result of their ministry, examine what they're doing. And to me, the analogy to Aaron's rod is amazing because what did they do? What did he bring out? He brought the 12 rods and they looked for fruit on each one. And only one bore that fruit. It's important to know the truth, but it's important also to understand whom God has given us to teach us about that truth. It was so important to God that he ensured Aaron's budded rod was placed in his ark so that his people would never forget that he rules through the people that he chooses and not others. Where is the passage that lists all these? And we'll close with that. It's in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul is talking about the temple on earth and how it corresponds to things in heaven. And he says in Hebrews 9 and verse 1, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. 
these things were important to God. And so the lessons they teach us should be important to us as well.